0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We're particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey everybody, welcome along to this episode. We're going to be speaking today with Robert Reed who has a really amazing life story and it's a challenging episode and we deal with a topic which can be hard to talk about, but I really appreciated the honesty and vulnerability with which Robert spoke about this topic. Here's an excerpt of the interview with him.
1: Well, I remember that I remember it was about uh, April last year and the guy that did save my life, that, that's, that last intervention, mm-hmm. um, I'd never actually said thank you to him. Right. And then I came out, I got a, some media got into contact with me to tell my story. Yeah. And I told the story, and he rung me literally the next day. And he was in tears, and he's like, bro, I didn't actually even realize how, how bad it was. Right. And I was like, and I said to him at that point, you know, after years later, yeah. years later, I actually managed to say thank you. And then if it oh, wasn't for clear. him, if it wasn't for him, I don't believe I would have been here today to yeah. be able to do and use what I've been through to try and help others. Yeah, And that is, that's is—that's the other big part for this, is that we need to be, the reason we need to be being real is because our experience and what we go through and how we get through them mm. will help guide others. Mm-hmm. And that, again, brings back that sense of community. Yeah. Yes, with social media, we can have a much wider community, but recognize that close community as well. Yeah. Recognize those people in your life that are there. Yeah and make as you said make sure we are telling them yeah appreciate them thank them even if they call you out for doing something stupid remember that they're doing that from a place of care
0: now i know you're going to enjoy this episode and also be challenged by it in terms of how we treat other people And for those of you who are followers on the Suicide Prevention and Awareness Facebook page, a big shout out to all of you. And if you enjoy this episode, then you might want to check out some of the earlier ones, because there's more than 75 different conversations with inspiring people making this world a little bit better. If anything in this conversation surfaces issues for you, then I encourage you to seek out somebody that you love to talk about it. And also in the links to this episode, I've put a number of different resources that you can go to to find out more about what Robert's doing, and also places that you can go if you want to talk about any issues you might be facing. If you listen to this episode in a podcast app, then if you subscribe, that will be one way to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes. There's also a Facebook page if you look up Seeds Podcast, And on that page, I tried to post behind the scenes video and other content which would be of interest into how we go about making this show. Now, let's get into this conversation with Robert. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Robert Reed here, who is a mental health advocate in Christchurch. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Um, It's great to have you on this show because I know we're going to talk about some really deep topics. And um, your particular area that you do a lot of work in is suicide prevention. So we're going to go there and people (laughs) listening, um, just be aware that we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy things. Um, But before we get into that and sort of, I guess, the nature of that in New Zealand, I'd love with my guests to find out a little bit more about where they're from and I guess what's led them to do whatever it is that they're doing now. So with you, if you don't mind, just take us right back to the beginning of your life and describe a little bit about your childhood and where you're from.
1: Yeah. So originally I was born in Hastings in New Zealand. Um, I was the second child born and come from a pretty rough neighbourhood where we were living. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of uh, gang involvement in the area and that kind of stuff. But for me growing up as a kid there, you never felt safer. Um, we were a really close-knit, tight community where kind of you knew everybody in your neighborhood everybody interacted the kids were out playing on the streets right um really really close-knit and then when I was about I think I was about seven years old uh, we moved as a family to Palmerston North and again lived in a really kind of quiet cul-de-sac where the kids all played on the street I remember uh you know my sister would be on her bike and I'd be behind on my rollerblades and she'd be towing me on a rope and all around the street and um, so again, that really close-knit tight yeah. where everybody kind of knew everybody.
0: Mm. Um, so community was pretty important yeah, in those yeah. contexts. and and,
1: yeah. and know, just kind of, I guess, generally knowing everybody that was around you. And if you needed something, you knew who you could go to straight away without any question. Um, then when I was about 10, I think I was about 10 years old, we moved to Christchurch. And for me, I, I don't know whether it was because it was a bigger city, um, but Didn't have that same sense of community. Um, You kind of knew your immediate neighbours, but that was kind of it. Right. Um, And coming in as my last year of primary school, of course, everybody at school already had their their cliques and their groups. And coming in that late into primary school and trying to fit into that um, was really, really difficult. Mm. and you're
0: old enough that at that age you're old enough to have established a group of friends right and so a new person coming in is
1: was pretty yeah yeah. and you know even even at the previous two schools I'd been to when I lived in the North Island um, had experienced I guess some levels of bullying um, for different reasons Mm -hmm. when when we lived in Hastings um, it was more that part of Flaxmere um, was very kind of Maori or Pacific Islander based Mm -hmm. so being a european coming into that community you were automatically kind of on the outside um, so there was a little bit of teasing because of that and then when we were in palmerston north because i'd come in kind of mid-school year yeah again didn't have a click didn't have a group um, i was also diagnosed uh, with adhd when i was living in palmerston north mm-hmm. and so it kind of got known as the kid who had to go take his pills at lunchtime right and there was automatically judgment and teasing and things because of that But when we came to Christchurch, it was kind of like taking what I had been dealing with and it just intensified big time because I had no group, Mm. knew nobody, was still taking the medication. But I'd kind of come to Christchurch with a different attitude as well. I decided I wasn't going to be the kid that was bullied anymore. I wasn't going to let people just pick on me. Right. Um, But the way that kind of ended up, I guess transpiring in my life is instead of being the kid that got bullied i started kind of sticking up for the kids that were getting bullied and kind of bullying the bullies i see which gave me a group but it was kind of that outcast group that automatically have these big targets on their backs um and because i was the loud boisterous one of that group it made me a very key target Mm. um like i'd be walking home from school and this was at primary school aged and there would be older siblings of the kids that I was going to primary school with that would try to chase me home from the high school um, just because they knew that there was beef at the school. Right. Um, So that followed me right through um, from primary school through to intermediate, through into high school. Mm. And at high school, it just got so much worse because Mm. that was kind of around the time of the birth of like Bebo and social media started to become a big thing. I see and so instead of it just being at school and then i could escape and go home and talk to my friends or talk to my family you couldn't escape it as much anymore mm. you know we had uh, what was it called the msn messenger where you could just about message anybody and you know kind of like what we've, where we've got with facebook messenger now and there'd be the bullying coming from there as well right so you couldn't escape it which i think is some of the problem we've got with bullying now is that you used to kind of be able to get away from it? Now you can't,
0: mm. and you're describing something that technology has played a huge role in. It's, oh yeah, uh, you know, like because I I hear what you're saying. You know, like twenty thirty years ago, people didn't even have email. <laughs> <laughs> like I actually remember getting my first email account and being like,
1: oh, what's this what's this, you know, how does it work? And I those, those, embarrassing, so those <laughs> embarrassing original email addresses. Yeah, that's <laughs> we, right. We won't, we won't go into those. <laughs> um, yeah. So it sounds like you, you're
0: describing a childhood that was actually quite stressful. Mm. Um, they
1: were definitely, I, I was also very lucky though, and I, I still count my, myself very lucky in the fact that I came from a really strong family unit. Right. Um, you know, I am one of the lucky ones that my parents have always stayed together yeah um i've got a sister who is very protective um there were two specific boys at high school who were kind of like the ringleaders of the group that were bullying me and i remember her telling me that she uh came across them on one day that she was going to school because she actually went to a different high school than what i went to right and she went past them and she stopped them in the street and um said to them that if they kept bullying me then she was going to bully them twice as bad um so they didn't stop but you know
0: you felt like there was some support yeah yeah what
1: was it that made your family unit so strong um i think i think for me the big part of it was where we grew up originally in hastings okay um because it was a very rough neighborhood um you know your parents kind of needed to know where you were all the time Mm. um we we had quite a large backyard, so we were quite regularly entertaining and having friends over to our house rather than us necessarily going elsewhere. Right. Um, so we were always very close anyway. Mm. Um, and I think I think it's also just the, I guess the morals and the values that my parents hold as well. Sure. Definitely definitely played a huge huge impact on keeping us as a very close knit family. Yeah. Um, I mean it, it's I guess it changes a little bit when we become adults. You know, we yeah. uh, me and my sister we obviously grew up start our own families things like that but i think the one thing is we both know no matter what we can always turn to each other in those times of need yeah um even if you know we may not have talked for months beforehand but something happens and we need each other the family the family unit is there yeah
0: which is a real credit to your parents isn't it you know that 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 they were so um Solid, so, yeah, because uh, yeah, I think that's going to play into the story, so it's good, oh. to, good to set the background. So yeah. so, um, what it, just in terms of high school and things, were there, I guess, areas that you enjoyed, subjects that you enjoyed more than others? Like paint a picture for what, like were you into sports or, you know, like what was it? <laughs> I was I, was,
1: I think I, the best way to put it is I was a very cross-section. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of subjects I was very good at. Um, I was very good in science and mathematics, English. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I enjoyed them or not was a different question. Sure. Um, the subjects that I personally enjoyed were things like PE and computer studies and being able to be very kind of hands on and active, right. which ties in very closely with the, the ADHD side of me. Yeah. Being able to constantly be on the go. Um, in my last year of high school, uh, which only I only ended up staying until I think it's fifth form is officially the, the term for it, or year 11.
0: Yep. And, um, so you're what 15 16 yeah kind of age yeah yeah.
1: basically as soon as i could leave school i did right um but in that last year even though this i was very good at certain subjects Mm. the science and english and mathematics Mm. um i did everything i could to not be in class right um and a lot of that was because pretty much the core group of my main bullies were all in those classes as well right Um, so
0: school for you was not a safe haven at all it was a a place where you you know were attacked or bullied yeah
1: so but unlike a lot of i think i guess bunkers as they'd be referred to um i didn't leave the school grounds when i would not go to class i would go and do the things that i did enjoy so i was very involved in the school's sound and lighting uh, Ah. for like the stage and the shows and things like that so for instance if i was trying to miss english i would go up to the lighting cupboard and start sorting out all the cables and sorting all the lights and tidying it all up from whoever had messed it up beforehand i see so i was still being productive yeah but it let me kind of get you know half an hour 45 minutes away from all the crap that was going on in class and during lunch times and things yeah so it was kind of like my escape became the things that i was enjoying while still being able to be productive and I was very, very, very lucky that um, the assistant principal of the school um, understood, and he knew what was going on, right He knew there wasn't a lot more than what they'd already done that the school could do at that stage to actually even try and help. Um, so he, when the teachers would have bring up the issue with him that Mr. Reed keeps missing class, yes, he would just sign it off and go, "It's fine." Because he knew where I was. He knew what I was doing. I see. Um, So he was very supportive in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, the school did a lot to try and intervene. Um, You know, they did everything from sitting the group down, sitting me down with them and trying to talk through the issues, which actually only made it worse the moment we got out of that meeting room. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They were like, "Huh? now we've got a whole bunch more ammo that we can use to pick on you. Yeah. Um, I would still, I think, though, when it comes to that, making sure that, the, the teachers or a teacher even in the school that you do feel safe with make sure that they are aware mm. because for me if it hadn't been for the assistant principal there's no way I would have made it as far through high school as I did
0: right um, so having an advocate or a sympathetic ears just huge, some, yeah,
1: somebody that somebody that can know and understand even if they can't do a lot to help mm. there might be stuff in the background they can do whether it is allowing you to have a certain class off here yeah. and there um, but yeah, PE P- was definitely probably one of my best subjects. Um, I come from a very, very athletic family. My parents meet through athletics. Right. Uh, my grandparents to this day still do athletics. Um, so I came from kind of that line. And athletics was always, I guess, one of my biggest escapes. Right. One of the things that I did too, that I could just do on my own and be good at. Um, but that's actually when it came to... When we first moved to Christchurch that's kind of almost partially also where some of the bullying started because there were those two boys I mentioned earlier who were kind of the top dogs when it came to the school and sport and everything right and in comes this brand new kid in the last year of school who goes and beats them at the cross country beats them at the, the sprints and starts beating them in the field events and they're like wait what Who's this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that kind of gone from being kind of the kingpins of school sport yeah. to suddenly i started getting the awards and the first place certificates. And, sure. And, of course, they didn't like that.
0: Yeah. Um, so it's more fuel to the fire. And, yeah. yeah.
1: Gave them more reason to dislike me, basically.
0: Yeah. So do you remember the day, I guess, I'm not sure what the best question is here, but maybe your last day at high school or the feeling as you left knowing that that was it you know like was there a point where you made that decision and
1: Uh, not not really like I had my obviously we finished the exams and had the the end of year assembly and things like that at the end of my fifth form year and I hadn't really decided at that point what I was going to do Mm -hmm. Um, I I definitely wasn't enjoying being at school I didn't feel that school was for me Um, Mm. you know I had the intelligence to be at school Mm. but the rest of the social side of it was just destroyed. Um, the people that I generally hung out with once I did get to high school were either one to two years above me yeah. or one to two years below me. There was no one within my own age bracket yeah. that I hung out with. So of course we're all in very different stages in our lives. Yeah, you know the the guys that I normally hung out with were year seven, uh, sorry seventh form, and we're leaving. Right, and there goes my pretty much my only safety blanket that I had at school my only kind of friend escape yeah and they're going Um, so it was during that that, the Christmas break that I kind of turned around and said to my parents that I I don't want to go back yeah so they put the deal in front of me that if I can find a job then that's fine right but it it has to be a full-time job so I went on the hunt (laughs) (laughs) and I did I managed managed to find one uh, just before the school year went back uh, working at a petrol station um, and that was my first kind of escape, and pretty much ever since, right up until two thousand thirteen, mm. I worked full time jobs. Right, um, range of different jobs. But and so when when did you leave high school? Then what was that? Ooh, Just it to give been, us a context of it would have been sixteen. So we're looking thirteen years ago. We're two thousand eighteen now. So it would have been about two thousand five. Yeah. Yeah, about two thousand and five. So from yeah, two thousand and five through to about two thousand and thirteen. Yeah, doing I worked different I worked. jobs I and employment. worked.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: worked. I went out flatting. Um, lived a very kind of I guess party lifestyle as well, mm-hmm. while still maintaining jobs and as much as as stably as I could. Um, one of the big things with ADHD is that you like and embrace change. Um, so me changing jobs could be a six monthly or yearly thing yeah. because i wanted and craved change um, i would move flats every three to six months because i wanted something new i, I felt too complacent and too still where i was hmm. and i needed to get out i needed to find something new to make my life exciting um, did manage to make a really really good core group of friends mm-hmm. um, once i left school i started hanging out um, in town here in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. Uh, There was an area called Hack, which is kind of where, I guess, all the outcasts and the ones that are looked down on by society hung out, hung out. So it was kind of all the goths and the people that were into the metal and darker stuff. And that became my core group because I felt like I fit. Right. Finally, you know, even though I'd been an outcast most of my life, I finally found a group of outcasts. You found a community. that, that, (laughs) That fit what, where I was and what I'd been through in my life. Yeah. And... They got me through some of the hardest times, right? Um, some of that group of friends are still some of my closest friends now. Hmm. Um, and it, again, with, with ADHD, you with that wanting and craving change. You can jump from friend circle to friend circle very quickly and very easily. Right. Um, definitely a social butterfly. So if you if you lined up my group of friends, you'd be hard pressed to find similarities between them because they come from a cross section. Of society um, right. because it gives me that diversity that my ADHD craves mm. you know if I feel like I want a particular I guess type of friend or interaction that day I can go find it easily within my group of friends
0: mm. um, so you like the diversity that comes from that
1: yeah yeah, yeah. I, I it's, it's kind of where I thrive you right. you put me in a room full of complete strangers and generally by the end of the day I will have worked around almost everybody in the room right um, Because it's cool to find out more about different people Mm -hmm. is kind of where I look at it now, and every everybody's got a journey and everyone's got a story, everyone's Mm. got their background. I think that that's actually one of the things I like about doing Mm. the Seeds podcast and stuff is Mm. hearing all those different stories and those journeys people have been on, yeah, and where it's taken them.
0: Yeah. Mm. Well, that's that's been you know just as a side note, that's kind of why I'm doing Mm. the podcast is I find it fascinating to hear diverse stories and um, share them with other people. Mm. But then the interesting thing to me is you'll. Like your story is very different to the person I just interviewed yesterday. Yeah. But then there's themes that come through, you know, like the importance of community and supporting other people. Like that came through in the interview I did yesterday. And now it's coming through with your interview. Mm. And there's these sort of underlying, I guess,
1: kind of core, you know, core, core, values. Yeah, core
0: values and principles, which unfortunately we kind of forget and we focus on the superficial sometimes. So, so that's why this type of thing is good. So just coming back to your story, then, um, you're working full time there for that, I guess, eight years or so. Hmm. And then can you just talk us through sort of what's going on in 2013 and, and yeah, a bit of that story as as much as you can share, you know? Yeah, I guess
1: in the, in the lead up to that, um, throughout those kind of mid to late teens, um, I really started struggling, I guess, with my own identity and where I fit in the world, um. And that led me to some pretty dark thoughts and some pretty dark moments in my life Mm -hmm. um in that kind of 11 through to 18 age bracket um i'd actually made three attempts on my life okay Um, all three of those had been kind of interrupted by the same one person really um wow. and until so this
0: is just moving back to christchurch is it or, or kind, of, kind of between between and. us
1: moving to christchurch yeah and then throughout that schooling period basically right. okay um mostly because yeah i i didn't feel i fit anywhere yeah so that led that led me down some pretty dark paths um the two of the times that i remember attempting um the person who intervened wasn't even supposed to be in Christchurch, let alone coming to see me. Um, they lived in another part of the country. Right. And they just happened to come to Christchurch either that day or the day before and decided to come try and catch up with me at that moment.
0: Huh.
1: And the second time that they, no, the third time that they interrupted me, um, they weren't even coming to see me. They happened to be driving down the road and I was in a, I'd climbed up a tree in a public park. Mm-hmm. And as they drove past, they saw somebody up the tree and they thought, that's really strange because it was not an easy tree to climb. And they'd pulled over and come to check that the person was okay and turned out to be me. Wow. Um, So yeah, it was, you know, I now look back on it and realise that that was fate. That it was that same person that I knew I could talk to, that I knew cared, was there. Wow. Even though at that point, on that third attempt, which was I think when I was about... I don't think I'd quite turned 18 yet. Mm. Um, they were actually living in Australia at the time. Huh. They'd come to Christchurch, I think it was the day before, just because they were coming over to catch up with family and friends that they had here. And they happened to be driving past that particular park at that particular moment. Wow. Um, so that's
0: almost um, Guardian Angel type thing, right? Like, Yeah, <laughs> that, well, that's that, they, that's...
1: that they were there. To, to put it yeah. almost kind of, I guess dark twist on events mm. um, they unfortunately ended up passing away about a, about six months to a year later right. um, from a drunk driver car crash over in Australia and at that moment once they passed I made kind of a vow to myself that I would never ever make another attempt on at my life no huh. matter how dark things got right. I wouldn't allow myself to do that Wow. Um, because the person who had stopped me all three times is no longer there to stop me. Right. Um, and I was, you know, almost scared that without them, I would actually complete and go through with it. Um, and that's, I think that's also part of then why my attempt in 2013 kind of, for me at least shows how dark of a space I got to. They don't even feel they were there. Right. Um, so yeah, for, for, for what happened in kind of 2013, it was a definitely a monumental year for me. Um, in March of 2013, my son was born, mm-hmm. um, me and his mother had been together, I think just shy of two years mm-hmm. and we had, we had a really good relationship, unorthodox, but it was a good relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately just, just before she fell pregnant, uh, our relationship had been a little bit rocky. Um, uh, and normally we could get through it cause normally we could sit down and talk the problems out. Right. Um, She had a really, really rough pregnancy, um, experienced really, really horrible morning sickness, and morning sickness is such the wrong word for it because it was all day, every day. Yeah. Um, So it meant that she was constantly feeling drained and no energy, no motivation, meaning that we couldn't sit down and talk out our problems. Um, Once our son was born, we kind of made the, the agreement that we would see how we went. And now that the pregnancy was over, the pregnancy hormones are out of the way, not going to be dealing with the sickness anymore, let's get our relationship back moving. Yeah, sure. Um, We attempted that for three months, and then we made the mutual agreement that we needed to call it quits. Um, And then so I moved out, went and got a new flat, and that was. it was almost immediately that I started watching my world kind of spiral out right um even though at the time i didn't recognize that that's what was happening mm. um i kind of went back to what i recognized as the good times of my life um being a party boy drinking all the time mm. um living a very very unhealthy lifestyle like my my literal diet consisted of three large pizzas a week alcohol and cigarettes that was what i lived off right um, and I was holding down a full time job at the time, and in, in a kind of a sen- senior role. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a
0: sustainable lifestyle, is it? <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Three pizzas and and beer and cigarettes is yeah, you know, no. it's not a was not. Uh, but it sounds from what you're saying as well. There's a lot of emotional things happening, like the birth of a child in in a lifetime. Like that's one of those points in life yeah. that is. Uh, you know, it's huge because, <laughs> and, and I I do, I've I thought... known
1: since I was like fourteen years old that I wanted to be a dad one day. Sure, and it always said I wanted to have my first child before I was twenty-five, yep. and that at the same time, you know, I wanted the dream of the white picket fence and mm. all of that. Didn't quite get the white picket fence, but the rest kind of did fall into place. Mm. You know, solid relationship, um, child before I was twenty-five, mm-hmm. things were going well. Yeah, and the birth itself, when my son was born. Was everything I dreamed it to be? Exciting, scary, nervous. Yeah. Um,
0: this new life is here. <laughs> yeah, and, and being
1: able to be there when he was actually born, and you yeah. know, catching him and cutting the umbilical cord and things like that, there is no words to describe the emotions I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that just that almost that overwhelming sense of pride and excitement, and mm-hmm. yeah, like you, I cannot put physical words to actually grasp how major that point was. Yeah. But what the problem was is that the, the immediately after, following that, the moment that other people started coming in and spending time with my son as well and all of that, I realized that this isn't, I'm not feeling how I expected to feel. Right. Um,
0: so you've got this incredible high of the new baby born, this is my son, but then you've, you're you going into the lows yeah, as dr- well.
1: Dropped dramatically really hard right. and couldn't, couldn't even slightly climb back. Plus, you've got the
0: relationship breakdown, yep. Moving out, unhealthy lifestyle.
1: Every yeah, you know, almost what the, what you'd refer to as kind of that perfect storm moment. Yeah,
0: sounds like it. Um,
1: and then in October of 2013, and I don't even remember much of this night. Most of it is, a, is still very much a blur, and some of sure. my recollection of it's come from the other people that end up being involved. But what I what I can remember is I come home from work and normally my routine when i came home from work was i'd walk inside and i'd have a shot Mm. and then i'd have my pizza and that was me beginning my night um this day the the one thing that i see that was definitely out of the norm that i did is i didn't immediately have a shot when i came in from work right Uh, i went straight to deciding okay i need to get my pizza ready and you know so i'd heated the pizza up and was about to cut it up and start organizing to eat mm. and I decided I wanted to go for a smoke. And for whatever reason, when I went for that smoke, I took the knife that I'd had to cut the pizza up and I took it with me. Mm. And kind of that moment that I went through the door out onto the back deck at the flat, it was like that was the shift in my mood immediately. Right. I went from kind of my everyday kind of low, but still kind of I'm ticking along. Yeah. To absolutely crash, hit rock bottom, smash yeah. through rock bottom and keep going.
0: Right um Um, uh, so would the word be despair was that sort of or how would you describe you um
1: (laughs) i think just numb numb and empty like nothing there there was no feeling there at all i felt like i didn't matter people were only the only people in my life were people that were using me for free alcohol or Mm. um I was definitely going back to kind of, I guess, my womanizing ways and people are just using me for sex or Mm -hmm. this, that and the other thing. So I felt like nobody in my life actually cared about me, Mm. they just cared about what they could get from me. Mm. And you take that away and suddenly there's no one. Mm. And you know, my relationship with my ex-partner, my son's mother. Had become extremely rocky because by this point she had entered a new relationship. Mm. Um, she'd moved in with them. They'd gotten engaged. Mm. I was like, "Cool, they've got their family now."
0: Where do I fit? Where right? do I fit yeah. into this? And you'd had the dream, I guess you know that in a way had been shattered at that point. You yeah. know, a couple of months or whatever later, the, the
1: White Picket Fence dream was gone. It was well and truly gone. Yeah. Um, so I ended up sitting out on that back deck for about five hours um kind of just internally trying to find some glimmer of hope Mm. some glimmer of meaning to my existence where do i fit in this world Mm. and every time i would come up with something i would also come up with five things that destroyed that piece right Um, so there was nothing that was actually i guess holding me here and i i still to this day don't know how or why i was there for as long as i was mm. um, but because i'd been so social before that night um you know again i, I was very much the party boy there was constantly people around me um, which i guess is the opposite of what we think of when we think depression or i right. think someone's suffering from depression we look for things like isolation um, but one of the things i think we do need to be looking at as well is almost over socializing, mm. because for me, again, hindsight being twenty twenty, I look back and I go, I was over socializing to quieten down those dark thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so that I was constantly busy, constantly active, so that I didn't have to stop and think. Mm. And the moment that I, was, I had the ability to stop and actually think, that's when everything crashed and everything hit all at once. Mm. Um, but one of my friends, because I wasn't texting anybody, I wasn't answering any phone calls, mm. one of my friends recognized something's different this this is this is (laughs) strange like i know he's not working tonight because he's worked morning shift he should be at home but he's not answering this is really strange so he came around knocked on the door and the the flatmate at the time answered the door Mm. and then no one else in the flat smoked so there was no even reason for anyone else to come outside right so of course my friend asked my flatmate you know is rob home yeah well, where is ha- he haven't seen him his pizza's out but i haven't seen him i see and my friend went to leave and he this is kind of what he's told me about his side of things so he got about halfway down the driveway and something in him just said nah uh, he he's here huh. he is here somewhere so he went back and he walked up to the top of the driveway where you could see the back deck and as he came around that corner he just kind of i guess was shocked by what he saw because mm-hmm. here is the party boy, the life of the party, cooped up in a ball, knife held to his throat. His initial reaction was trying to physically take the knife off me. Mm-hmm. Um, needless to say, I was able to outstrength him and, in fact, him trying to take it away just kind of almost reinforced, I need to do this now. I'm not going to have another chance. And... When he realised that he couldn't outstrength me, he then tried to talk it out of my hands. Um, after about an hour, and I can't remember what it is he said, but something he said mm. made me almost snap out of it for a, for a split second, and that was long enough for me to just let the knife go. Right. And the moment uh, I said this before is that you know that that particular moment I can watch in slow motion, mm. um, almost from the outer body experience. I can watch that moment unfold and it's you know as the knife is falling he's rushing towards me to grab me um the moment that knife hit the ground he booted it so that it went flying away so there was no chance of me getting it again yeah um and he just wrapped me up in this big bear hug um he then picked me up and you know he he's a small horse jockey he's not a big guy and he picks me up and carries me out to his car wow And it is, you know, you you hear about those kind of those almost superhuman moments of, you know, babies being able to lift cars off their parents and things like that. I kind of see it like that. Yeah. Because there is no way he should have been able to carry me. Um, So he picked me up he carried me out to his car. The moment he got me in the car, he said, I'm taking you up to the hospital. And immediately I started trying to fight him on it. Try to get out of the car and so here we are driving down the road with him one arm holding me in the passengers seat and right him trying to drive the car so we ended up stopping and picking up another friend on the way and that friend was specifically there to hold me right um, got up to the hospital and then we sat in the waiting room at the hospital for almost three hours so here we are now almost nine hours since kind of that that moment hit. yeah yeah nine hours later and still haven't really gotten anywhere with my own internal search of i need to find a reason yeah um sat down with the 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 psychiatric team and after some talking they they said you know we think you've got postnatal depression and i said that's not possible i'm not a female (laughs) (laughs) and um they they went on to explain to me that you know well actually it can affect about 10 percent of men yeah um and most go undiagnosed and untreated um, so it was actually really lucky that I'd come in. And I was at that moment, the moment they said that it was really lucky that I'd come in, I almost had that slight glimmer of hope because I was like, wait, does that mean someone's going to help me?
0: Right. I'm not on my own. <laughs> like
1: somebody is actually going to help me now. Um, unfortunately, their the version of help at that time was, here's a couple of pills, come back and see us in a couple of months if you're not feeling better. Right. And go again from that slight, that, even that just that slight glimmer of hope had to almost take me to cloud nine. And then to go, we're not actually giving you any help. Yeah. And it was crashed to Brock Come bottom back again. a few months later, yeah. Yeah, so went, my friend took me out of the car and I turned to him and I said, so you're taking me home now, yeah? And he goes, nope, uh, you're coming back to my house. Huh. And he, ref- on the car ride back to his house, he informed me that he was not gonna let me out of his sight until I, re- I agreed to tell my family. Yeah. Um, because of the, the earlier attempts in my life which my parents found out about, I didn't want to let them know that was my biggest fear, mm. was disappointing my family because they'd always been there, mm. they'd always been my rock and the, you know my support but because I felt like such a failure with everything I'd done and put them through, it meant to me that I couldn't tell them this, there's no way, I'd, you know, it would shatter them, yeah. they'll end up where I am. Um, so it took it took three days of my friend literally keeping me under his 24-7 surveillance. <laughs> and I mean, I couldn't go to the toilet. I couldn't go shower. I couldn't go outside for two minutes. I was 24-7 wow. under his watch for three days. Because um, basically the next morning after we got home from the hospital, he rung his work and said, I'm out. I'm out until. Um, I can't tell you why. You're just going to have to understand. Um, he was quite well respected in his job. So he was able to get that. Yeah. Um, so you've
0: had two guardian angels really, because <laughs> yeah. this guy sounds amazing. Oh he was to, to go out of his way like that, to come back to find you to I think the hard the you. hard part
1: for me, and this is this is something I battled with um, after the fact, kinda once I did get better, is there were incidences that happened earlier on with me and this friend mm. that had made me feel really uncomfortable. Um, had made me feel very unworthy, unwanted, that I just didn't matter mm. um, for him to be able to do some of the things that he's done when it comes to me. So I was in this real kind of internal battle of, he is one of the reasons I am in this position, Yeah. but now here he is also being the reason I'm getting through this. Mm. And it was really internal battle um, but I do, I agree now that 100% that it, he was definitely being my guardian angel at that moment. Mm. Um, he still is one of my closest friends now. Mm. And, you know, when, whenever, if I do start to feel low or whether there's good or bad going on in my life, even though he now lives in Auckland, we still regularly catch up on what's going on in each other's lives yeah. and make sure we do touch base. But yeah. yeah, there was definitely a period there where it was really, with with the kind of the original person that had always intervened, there was no question to me um they cared they mattered yeah this this the other friend had made me feel both like I mattered and was cared for but it also made me feel like absolute crap as well yeah so it was it became its own internal battle as well with that one but um
0: so I'd love to talk a little bit about the recovery I guess and and then also just more generally around um, what you've done since then mm. um, because I think that would be helpful for the listeners so yeah. sort of what what happened in the next couple
1: yeah so know, if couple if directly weeks following months. on after that you know I, I opened up to my family um, started actually getting support and help mm. uh, managed to go and get some counseling sessions which if I if they'd been more available would have been far more helpful sure um, but managed to get some supports around me and kind of I guess pull myself through that mm. situation and if we fast forward to February of 2014, I had this overwhelming kind of sense of, I need to do something. Mm. I need to do something about this. And the indecision decision was, okay, I'm going to run an event in Christchurch to absolutely blast this onto the mainstream media and get it out there that nobody can not talk about this anymore. Because back in 2014, as a society, we still were not talking about suicide. Mm. Um, So i went to try to do this event and the event didn't happen but what did happen is i created a facebook page um, to kind of coordinate the event and the event was the page was simply called suicide awareness slash prevention what happened after creating the page is we started having people message and go hey i need someone to talk to can you help right and i'm
0: sitting there going Because this is an official page, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) i got to communicate. it's like,
1: "Um, crap, well, I'm not a professional, but um, I guess if if you just need someone to talk to, I can chat to you. Right. And over time, that's kind of what the page ended up becoming. Mm -hmm. And then I started using using it with what we posted on the page as well to put things out there that I thought would help people that are in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. a lot of it was really positive and really kind of i guess sunshine and rainbows mm-hmm. because i thought you know person in dark needs lots of light let's flood it mm. um over time once we got to 2015 the page i think it had around a thousand likes and was getting quite active yep. and i was staying up until three four five six a.m right. responding to messages because i didn't want to leave somebody with their message not responded there, to you'd been there
0: before right yeah and you yeah. Where
1: there was nobody yeah i'm not going to leave somebody else in that same position so i ended up uh, you know asking a few of my friends if they could come on and help and mm-hmm. over time now that that same page is now growing and exploded um so when i think i looked this morning we're sitting at something around two hundred seventy-five thousand likes on the page now yeah um and it's just it's just it's amazing, isn't it? it? Absolutely like that's, exploded. That's a,
0: that's a quarter of a million people, yeah. around the world. <laughs> it's
1: crazy, especially when I look back at you know this time in 2017. Yeah, we had, I think it was eight thousand. Right. So especially in the last year, it is absolutely just blowing up. Yeah. Um. Which internationally.
0: Guess, yeah. Right. Which I guess shows the need that it, that that there's people are out there looking for something, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. And I yeah. think
1: you know it's it's almost bittersweet. big the pages become yeah because it's awesome that people are reaching out and are talking and are sharing posts Mm -hmm. and getting these conversations happening but at the same time it's almost bad that it's having to
0: it's like um i always use the picture of charities you know like charities are doing amazing work to help impoverished children here Mm -hmm. or abuse people here or whatever but wouldn't it be better if there was no charity? Because if there was no need yeah, for exactly. It. Cause Yeah, exactly. Because there are no children who are you know, having difficult situations or whatever. So I hear what you're saying. So can I just ask a question? Why do you think we as a society, I guess, don't talk about these
1: things? To put it really, really bluntly, a, a big chunk of it is um, it's, it's been a very big taboo subject for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we look back um, 50 to 80 years ago, we didn't discuss cancer. Mm. people didn't talk about cancer Mm. um, because there was the the mentality that if we talked about it the problem would get worse that mentality still exists now around mental health and suicide right but if we take both those causes and we look at the advances we have seen in cancer treatment and survival rates Mm. and you know advancement towards cures and things like that since the conversation around cancer it was actually allowed to happen Mm. That's what we need to be seeing for mental health and suicide, mm. is we need those conversations to be happening. Mm. Um, there's a lot of stigma associated, there's a lot of sense of both self-shame and public shame mm. when it comes to if you're battling mental health or if you're having suicidal thoughts, that people were like, if I tell people they'll think I'm attention seeking or they'll think that I'm making it up, because unlike a physical illness, you can't see it. Mm. And that's you know part of the position that I now feel for the hospitals and those places, you know, even Mm. in my own case, where I felt absolutely let down that I had not received the help. And I blamed for a long time, I blamed the hospital, I blamed those doctors and nurses. What I've come to recognize now is that those doctors and those nurses were being put and forced into a position where they're having to triage mental health. Mm. If you have to triage something you can't physically see, Mm. how do you work out who is just saying that suicidal and who has actually got the full intent and is going to go through with it. Mm. How do you work? How do you manage that?
0: Mm. Because what you're saying is it's kind of under the surface, you know, like mm. if, if, if we'd seen a picture of your life the day before or whatever, you were at a party, you were talking with this person, mm-hmm. you went over there, chatted to that person, you know, like
1: I you, was, I was working a full-time job. Yeah. I was holding down a good flat. I had a wide range of circle of friends I had my pick of girls, you know, my life looked like a yeah. great life from the outside.
0: Yeah, which is the key thing, isn't it? Because so often in life, we assume so much, uh, particularly in social media world where you can post the best picture. You can portray you, yourself you know, as whatever you want. You take a hundred pictures and the best one is the one that you post. You don't show the, 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 the other. And in a way, you know, the picture of the iceberg, you know, you can only see the little bit at the top yes. and there's so much underneath that's going on. And I guess part of it is being open and willing to, to share something of yourself and and to have the vulnerability to admit that not everything is okay. Mm. That's part of the conversation, isn't it?
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, and it's one of the things that now, you know, when we're talking about on social media, you can make your life look perfect. Mm. Anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Anybody can make their life look perfect on social media. Mm. One of the things that I've really strived to do now is that I try to be very real mm. using my social media mm-hmm. um, So there's been more than one occasion when I'm really struggling and really battling that mm. I literally put a status up And I'll simply say I'm not okay yeah. I need help, I need some support right now um, Or you know When something bad does happen I don't hide it yeah. I, tr- I try to make sure that I am being as real and as authentic on social media as mm-hmm. I can be um and like, so you're
0: trying to set a pattern so other people feel like they can follow that example right Yeah. because i've noticed that because uh, we're facebook yeah. friends so i see some of your posts and sometimes it is hey i'm feeling lonely does anybody want to hang out tonight you know yeah. like or something bad happened what, what's
1: everyone up to because i've got nothing to do yeah um yeah. or a really good prime example of this week uh we did some work felt amazing i uh, got really seriously sunburned yeah <laughs> <laughs> But again, it's like when you were saying about you take the 99 photos and you show one. Yeah. Something I've had to stop myself because that's exactly what I used to do. Mm. I used to sit there and take a whole bunch of photos till I found the perfect one. Um, I put, purposely put up a lot of selfies now, but it's the first photo I take. Ah, Whether it's perfect or it's crap, it's the first. The first photo I take is the photo I put up. Right. Whether I edit it and put some effects on it, maybe, but it's never anything to hide. Yeah. Behind.
0: You're trying to show reality yeah. rather than a, a mask a, a, or a, a picture. A happy,
1: perfect life. Yeah. Because, let's be honest, everybody has got things that they're struggling and battling yeah. with. And well, if we can bring it out that people can actually openly talk about this stuff, especially us guys, because mm. we absolutely suck at talking about our emotions. Mm. Um, if we can get it so that people can do that, yeah. then we might actually start seeing some major change yeah. in these areas. Because yeah. the
0: thing that strikes me when I, whenever I meet anybody... You know, the, the initial impression is one thing, but then you just don't know that their their father has just been diagnosed with cancer or that, you know, their sister just <laughs> lost her job or yeah. other things are happening in everybody's life. Correct. And you just, unless you are curious and asking the right questions and able to draw that out, then you then, don't know. Then you don't know. Um, just picking up on something you just said about men and mental health. I agree completely. I think there's a, particularly perhaps in New Zealand, there's a perception that the ideal male is an all black, you know, mm. who does, never cries. <laughs> is, and is strong. Gonna, is it very is. strong. And, and is a DIYer who can get some number eight wire and fix whatever Anything. is Yeah, exactly. Anything. Anything
1: uh, could be fixed with duct tape and number eight wire. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Which is, it, it's interesting. I guess, how do we go about
1: changing some of that? You know, um, I think, I think one of the, one of the best, um, well, two of the best, in my, to be honest, um, people that have come out about this, mm. where we've got former all black talking out about depression right. um, and going, hey, look, I had the picturesque life. You all saw it. You all thought my life was perfect. But guess what? It wasn't. Yeah. And this is what I wish I had done better back then. Yeah. And then you get another public personality who was known as the jokester being super funny, super hilarious, yep. making crowds laugh around the world, and then find out that actually that entire time he was feeling like absolute crap himself. Right. Um, he felt hideous. and So it's know.
0: about telling stories that are honest and authentic, isn't yep. it?
1: And we need, we need, I guess, those people that are in those positions. You know, we mentioned about that picturesque life. Mm-hmm. We need the people that are publicly seen as having that, to speak up and be real mm. about the reality of what they 're living, mm. um, we look at the likes internationally of people like Robin Williams, mm. someone you would never ever have expected mm. to be battling with depression mm. and yet it 's actually been found that on multiple occasions in multiple interviews he made insinuations and he made kind of around the bat comments yep. that that 's where he was actually at um, and then you look at someone on on almost on the polar opposite of that, someone like Chester Bennington mm. who had released you know best-selling albums around the world where they do. They openly talk about the dark spaces in your brain and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, being one step closer to the edge, being, you know, one of their most famous songs. And you'd think, okay, they're using this as a way to get it out. That's awesome. So they must be okay. And then you see he goes and takes his life. It's things like that. And this is where I think it is good that we do report um, in the media and stuff when a, a celebrity or a, a public figure does mm. die by suicide or does check themselves into a rehab clinic mm. or checks themselves into a mental health institute um, We've just seen that recently kind of here in New Zealand mm. We were seeing a public figure end up in a mental health institute mm. and I actually love that because mm. it shows Reality sure it shows that we are all vulnerable to this It can hit anybody at any time in any way in their life. Yeah, um you know you bring it back to my own experience the moment my son was born should have been the happiest moment of my life and sure it was initially mm-hmm. immediately but within hours afterwards i was already spiraling downwards right nobody saw that because we were all wrapped up
0: yeah so thinking about your own case what could have happened differently like who, what question could have helped you you know I think if the, people... The day after your son was born or, you know, you're you're on the path going down.
1: I think for us guys, um, especially for dads, you know, there's a lot of emphasis immediately after a child's born um, on the child and on the mother. Mm. There's not a lot there for guys. There's not a lot of advice or support or anything for dads. Mm. Um, so I think the biggest thing is making sure that there is some. Um, and we're starting to see some of it come out now. There is yeah. There is a few awesome groups that are coming out and doing stuff for dads. But... We need to be doing more of it. The biggest, I think the biggest thing somebody could have done is notice that my behavior and my attitudes changed towards things. Yeah. Because I look back on it now and I'm like, how did you not see it? Yeah, sure. How did you not see that I went from being the happy guy that bounced around the house all day to I was lucky if I got out of bed uh, before two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, you know, the which comes back change.
0: to the it comes back to that word community, doesn't it? The Authentic relationship, yeah. telling stories, being open, but community and having people who care.
1: And for me, that that when it comes to especially here in New Zealand, but I think we can see it internationally as well. We have lost our sense of community. Mm. Social media has taken over, and that is now our community. is social media, right. but as we said before, it's so easy to be fake on that yeah whereas in person it's a lot harder to fake what's going on
0: which which is a generational shift because you know the the previous generations didn't have that you know it was the um eye to eye face to face you know you wrote a letter to somebody and you heard back three weeks later (laughs) because it physically traveled you know rather than now it's like instantaneous um communication
1: because of that that instant we've got now, we also, as a society, we almost expect instant results from everything. Mm-hmm. So even me in that hospital, I expected instantly, the moment that I spoke to that psychiatric team, I expected mm-hmm. instant help and instant results. Mm-hmm. But that was just not reality. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. Isn't it? I, I find it fascinating the generational shifts that we're, are happening, but we aren't really thinking about it. You know that Because I've got young kids, mm-hmm. um, like your son, you know, that they're growing up as digital natives, that my three-year-old can get a phone and just sort of scroll through and it's just without even, you know, I didn't think about it. And he's just kind of naturally, it's just almost part of it. And, yeah. and yet it's
1: like my son, like my he's now five years old yeah, and he knows how to a hundred percent navigate an Xbox and knows how to get onto Netflix or YouTube and navigate his way around it. No problems at all. Yeah. It never talked to him. Yeah. He just knew it.
0: Yeah. Whereas previous generations, I, I still remember some <laughs> older people in my family, you know, that would be like, how do I program the VCR to record that show? <laughs> you know, it, it's 7.30 on a Friday. Oh, it's recorded the morning, not the evening. You know, yeah. it's <laughs> fascinating. So can I just ask you another quick question? Just with New Zealand and
1: suicide rates here, what is it you think that causes them to be so high? Um, it ties into that, that sense of community again. Mm-hmm. Um, as a country, I think we have lost our identity. Mm-hmm. Um, we are trying to be a big player, um, and forgetting the fact that we are a small island nation. Mm. Um, we should be one of the closest net kind of major players as a country. We should yeah. be. Yeah. But I can tell you right now, like I lived in my the I've just in June this year I moved into a new house, but in the house wasn't before that I lived there for two and a half years. I knew after after a year of being there, I finally got to know the neighbour on either side of me. Right. But that was the extent of it. After two and a half years, yes. I knew the neighbour on either side. You could say hi as you <laughs> didn't know anything show. about their lives. Yeah. But I knew who they were. Yeah. Uh, but I knew nobody else on my street and I lived in a really quiet cold attack, which I'd grown up in all my life. Yeah. Where, you know, kids were all out playing on the streets together, all the parents knew each other, they were, you know, neighbourhood barbecues every other week mm. and which I wonder, There's does it tie back to the
0: technology now. a little bit in the sense of you go into your house and then you're on social media connecting with people elsewhere rather yeah. than local? Because we've got a mutual friend, Mark Ambundo, yes. from Kenya, and on the podcast interview I did with him, he was sharing how in Kenya people are out on the road and you you know your neighbors yep. because the kids are playing and you're sharing food, and it's we, a very different culture. to. Share if we here. look at
1: Christchurch... Um, I mean, one of the most pivotal moments in Christchurch history, for my generation especially, Mm -hmm. uh, was the earthquakes. Mm -hmm. You know, immediately following the earthquakes for the first kind of two to three days after that, uh, social media networks were swamped. It was really hard to get on and get updates. It was really hard to make phone calls. It was really hard to text Mm -hmm. uh, because the systems kept getting overloaded. But what we noticed was those community barbecues were happening. Yeah, right. You People were out on the streets getting to know their neighbours. Whether it be out of concern because of the earthquakes or whatever, mm. it brought communities together. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that really annoyed me was kind of the, when the government came in and stepped in and got involved, mm. they chucked up a whole mile long of red tape. Mm. They absolutely destroyed that. You know, people were getting arrested and told off. Um, fined for having the barbecues out on the street doing a Mm. neighborhood barbecue because of health and safety
0: Mm. so the natural community that was forming as a result of this traumatic event wasn't allowed to fully blossom into what it could have become and just picking up on something as well um, you know the word community I, i actually think in new zealand we've got a potential foundation which comes from the maori Mm. Uh, way in, in in the sense of the word whanau yep the idea that it's not just the unit of family that you're connected to it's actually broader a broader network bigger. it's
1: that it's that's that that old saying of it takes a village yeah um, take, you know it takes a village to raise a child yeah I think it takes a village to do damn near anything mm. um, we we need that sense of community back and we need to be able to bring people together and I do I think some of the people that, that still are in New Zealand kind of, I guess, live in that, that traditional Māori mm. environment, you see that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, some of them still living on the marae and sharing and caring. And, mm. you know, if you ever go to a, uh, you know, a flax weaving session, you see it, you see mm-hmm. the, the, the mokopono or the, the the older mm-hmm. member of the generation mm-hmm. teaching the next generation, teaching the next generation down, 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 yeah. down. And then you've got these two, three, four-year-olds sitting there playing with it and almost naturally mm. picking it up because they're watching mm. and we are all coming together. And there is so much that I think we need to be learning and sharing between generations mm. that you don't see now. Mm-hmm. You, you might find it on Pinterest, mm-hmm. but that's about the only place you are going to find it yeah. of teaching and sharing skills and utilizing each other's skills to help mm. each other. And mm. valuing
0: the wisdom of the, the 70 year old or the 80 year old, you know, like mm. rather than, Oh, they're past it, you know, and I think
1: I think that when we're talking about the, the rising rates of suicide and things I think that is a big part of it. Yeah, is the fact that I know as being when I was a youth Would I have turned to my grandparents for advice or for guidance or help no way? Mm. Because you know, they're old they they're, they're on their way out. Mm. I don't want to talk to them I'll go talk to my mate, you know Joe blogs down the street. Yeah um, Or I'll put a post up on social media and see what the world has to say about my thoughts
0: mm. Because I'll get an instant answer as well, right? Correct. <laughs> there,
1: there won't be this long, in-depth story after backstory after backstory about why and how and yep. all of that. It's here's your answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No explanation as to why that's the answer, but here's your answer. Yeah. And that, that in itself, again, comes back to that missing community and missing being able to put the phones away, put the computers away, get outside and play, yep. sit down, have family meals. Um, one of the biggest things when I recently moved houses The biggest thing i was looking for was a house with a dining room Mm. so that even though it is me and my son we can sit at the dining room table technology goes away and we can sit down and share a meal together Mm. whether we talk and discuss the world or the day he's five like (laughs) but you know we might discuss what he's done at school that day or who his newest best friend is or um talk about how his counting's going little things like that yeah means so much and a lot of it is missing these days mm. the amount of my friends and stuff that i see both my generation and kind of below it, even some slightly older that you see a, a sitting around watching tv and that's how they have their dinner yeah it reminds me of the movie matilda where you you see mm. her original family and you know she gets told off for trying to learn knowledge from reading her books because she's not sitting down with the family watching tv eating their dinner yeah um, that's such a great story yeah. whereas how much, how much knowledge and kind of world understanding did she get from reading things like the likes of Moby Dick mm. and the, these great novels and these great stories mm. and don't get me wrong I'm not a reader I, I'm not one to generally sit down and read a book but I will quite happily go out and self-learn and self-teach mm. f- by hearing other people's experiences mm. and talk, hearing what other people have been through and talking with them about it and learning what they learned from Mm. their experience, Mm. because although it may not help me necessarily, it just might may Mm. not help me right now. Who knows in 10, 20, 30 years where I'll be or what I need to know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. We've touched on a lot of topics here. If some people want support, like what is there out there from your experience? Mm. Let's just say in Christchurch, because I want to make sure people can connect if they, if I think, I think further.
1: If, if we speak really broadly, firstly, on a, on a global scale, mm-hmm. um, there is not a country in the world that does not have a crisis hotline. Mm. We are talking right down to, you know, North Korea, which is completely stripped of social media, basically, mm. and highly, you know, moderated. There is still a crisis hotline number in North Korea. There is crisis hotline numbers in third world countries mm-hmm. where you can ring and reach out. That that if, if you've got nowhere else, it's a great place to start. You know, here in New Zealand, we're really lucky in the fact that we've actually kind of got two major ones where we've got Lifeline, and of course we've got um, Home Commutical with 1737. Mm. Um, I really I really will push the 1737 for one really big thing that they've done that I've never seen done before, um, and that is that. You can text or call the number 100% for free, whether you have credit or not. So you could, if you had $5 left to your name Mm -hmm. and you needed someone to speak to, but you've got nothing. You've got no, you know, you've got a phone, but maybe it's been cut off by your network provider. You know, really potential, you know, if you're in a really despair moment, you haven't been paying your bill, your phone's been cut off. Oh, now I have no way to reach out. You go down with that last $5, buy a brand new SIM card, put it in the phone, and you can call or text 1737 instantly hmm. um, and be connected with trained counsellors. Hmm. Um, for Christchurch, I think one of the really common misconceptions hmm. is that there is not, there is no help. There is no one out there. There is no services available. Hmm. That's really, really wrong. Um, for Christchurch alone, there's over 1,300 social services. The biggest problem is that people don't know about them. Mm. We need to be getting word out about what is actually available. Mm. Um, for myself, for Christchurch alone, you know, there's um, two really great services that I recommend people to, and that's Hiwakatapu, um, especially if it, if it is something cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, they, ha- they do come from that really Maori kind of Fano background and mm. the way that they approach. Mm. Um, otherwise, there's MAPS, which is uh, Mental Health Advocacy and Peer Support, and one of the things I love about their service is that they have a walk. They have walk-in every day. There's a time period of every single day that you can walk in off the street and be connected with somebody. Hmm. Um, and the second thing that I think that for me is what sets them apart from almost every other service is their staff all come from lived experience. They are, they are peer support. Right. They have been through this stuff. There will be somebody in that service that has been through what you're going through hmm. and can help guide you throw it Mm -hmm. um so you know the that's just to name two of 1300 yeah social services no that's good
0: and what we'll do in the show notes we'll put some links maybe to some things if you send me some um info and then if people are listening right now they'll be able to scroll down and then they'll be able to click and you know get some more information so that's good um, Robert, I have a question um, just to sort of finish off. I notice you've got some tattoos. <laughs> I'm just wondering um, does, what some of them stand for. Are they reminders to you of,
1: of the past and things, and, mm. and how do they help? Uh, so, yeah, I've got about 18 or 19 tattoos. Um, they all have really kind of sentimental, in-depth ones, yeah. uh, meanings to them. Um, for instance, I've got the, the semicolon behind my ear, which is the stands for Your Story's Not Over, because in right. English... A semicolon is used when an author could have ended their story uh-huh. but chose to continue going. And that's very much someone like myself at a point where I could have taken my life, mm. my story wasn't over, it kept going. Yeah. Um, and then on my wrist I've got one that I can show you, but it, <laughs> it, if it, re- it reads to you, it'll read I'm fine. Yep. If I flip it around, it actually says save me.
0: Uh-huh. Um,
1: so that was done as a suicide awareness one. Um, the one I've got up my other arm is it's written in two dialects that I absolutely love which is Russian and German Mm -hmm. Um, and written in the Russian it's always love yourself or I love myself Mm -hmm. and then written going out so going down the the other way way, yeah Um, so it's kind of outward focused is always love others Mm. Um, which is a way that I when I am starting to feel low, that's something that I remind myself is that I do love myself I love who I am even if at that moment I feel like complete crap i do love myself yes um but i always need to remember that to love others as well make sure what i'm putting out is love as long as what i'm bringing in is love as well you know bring it back to that that maori terminology is the aroha Mm. and aroha is one of the most curing and helpful things you can give to somebody Mm. if you can be that beacon of light and that beacon of love people get drawn to that Mm. Um, and that's definitely, you know, since I guess coming out with my story and doing the stuff I do now, mm. the amount of people it draws to you, mm-hmm. whether they're somebody you would generally interact with or not, is actually quite mind blowing. Mm. You know, I, I have friends now on social media from all around the world that I speak to on a regular basis mm-hmm. um, and are some of my closest and best friends uh one of my best he's like a brother to me he lives in detroit michigan and we touch base all the time Mm -hmm. and share our life stories and you know he's he's much older than me Mm. but we just we We got that connection yeah and that is where social media can be amazing Mm. we need to be but i think we just need to start really being real yeah social media
0: and that's the hope for this podcast, actually, is that mm. because I think ultimately it's about stories and people connect with stories like statistics mm. is one thing, it's, you know, 1300 I, agencies. That's cool. But tell me a story about somebody's real life, which is what you've mm. thank you so much for sharing today. You know, like it's it's actually getting beyond the
1: superficial mm. and going a bit deeper. I totally then, agree. I, for me, I, I generally try to shy away from talking statistics mm-hmm. um, because to me, it feels really cold. Yeah. It feels really, I guess, like I don't get it. It's just numbers. What does it matter? Mm. You know, we, we heard earlier this year that, you know, the, the suicide statistics in New Zealand were 668. To me, that number means nothing.
0: Mm.
1: It, it's a number. Mm. Whereas the year before, when, we did, when the number was 606, mm. again, it was a number. It didn't mean anything until we went out and did um, the 606 shoes display where we laid out 606 pairs of shoes right to represent every single one of those people not you know i've been doing stuff in this realm at that point for three and a half four years so i was almost kind of almost numbed to the conversation yeah because i had heard so much and part of my own protection is almost separating yourself from yeah. the real life of it yeah when i went down and laid those shoes out i, I only managed to do it for about five minutes before it really started taking a really heavy toll on me
0: yeah um the visual representation right rather than just just the 606 but
1: seeing the shoes and thinking of all the stories attached to those shoes you Mm -hmm. you lay out a pair of work boots and then you lay out a pair of you know 10 year old sports shoes yeah what are the stories attached to those what was going on with that life Mm. that this is now where that what we're doing
0: yeah it's so powerful well the the aim of this our interview i knew we were going to talk about a lot of topics (laughs) and we've done that which is fantastic um the aim here um is really to spread more of your story so that others can listen and hopefully reach out and Mm. connect because i think you've been extremely articulate in how you've described it and also just the vulnerability of of sharing your story um, coming back, thinking about it you know like way back in your childhood, and understanding the context of what led you mm. to where you got to, but then also understanding you know that those two people who intervened, they really were like guardian, guardian. angels and I'm my question so. and my question for for myself, for you, for anyone listening is who are we the guardian angel for in because all of us are touching other lives. How are we acting in relation to other people who seem fine, but maybe just need that extra question or that extra bit of time? I think the
1: two questions that go with that is, you know, who are we being the guardian angels for Mm -hmm. and who are our own? Mm -hmm. Being able to recognize those people in our lives that no matter what, they will be there. Mm -hmm. No matter what goes on, they will be there. And they are the people that we do need to be honest with and be real with. If you can't be honest and real with anybody else, Recognize those people that have stuck with you by anything Mm. Even when you've done wrong or Mm. anything like that They've stood by you and supported you and Mm. helped you Those people we really need to cherish in our lives Because they are the ones that will be there Mm -hmm. When when you can't find the hope yourself Mm. They will be the ones there that will help guide you back to it
0: Mm. I like that Having mentors, having people that you can look to And maybe also telling them, right? (laughs) Definitely all of our lives are uncertain. We don't know what's happening, and maybe they'd need a word of encouragement. You've had a huge influence on my life. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, well, I
1: remember. I remember it was about uh, April last year, and the guy that did save my life—that that last intervention—I'd mm-hmm. um, never actually said thank you to him. Right. And then I came out. I got a, some media got into contact with me to tell my story. Yeah. And I told the story and he rung me literally the next day and he was in tears and he's like, bro, I didn't actually even realize how, how bad it was. Right. And I was like, and I said to him at that point, you know, after years later, yeah, years later, I actually managed to say thank you. And then if it mm, wasn't for cool. him, if it wasn't for him, I don't believe I would have been here today to yeah. be able to do and use what I've been through to try and help others. Yeah. And that is, that's the other big part for this is that we need to be, the reason we need to be being real is because our experience and what we go through and how we get through them mm. will help guide others. Mm-hmm. And that, again, brings back that sense of community. Yeah. Yes, with social media, we can have a much wider community, but recognize that close community as well. Yeah. Recognize those people in your life that are there. Yeah and make as you said make sure we are telling them yeah appreciate them thank them even if they call you out for doing something stupid remember that they're doing that from a place of care mm. um, they're not calling you out to be nasty yeah they're doing it because they care because if they didn't care they'll just let you go make the stupid mistake
0: yeah yeah. yeah it's about uh, like your tattoo right um, loving yourself but reaching Always out to others. other people as well loving others yeah well it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast thank you it's been um, awesome and we've just touched so many topics. <laughs> I hope it's helpful for people We'll put in the show notes some links because some people may this may have surfaced things for them and mm. want you know we'd encourage people to reach out to those others and and get um people they can talk to. Um, but yeah, I just want to say so much. Thank you for coming on the show. And thank you for doing the show. <laughs> no worries. Well, I hope you enjoyed and were challenged by that conversation with Robert. I know for me, a lot of the themes that he touched on really resonated, particularly around our responsibility in how we treat other people. And I also love that reminder of telling the people you love that you love them and appreciate them. Like I said at the start of the episode, if there's anything in what we talked about that raised issues for you, I encourage you to seek out a friend or a family member to talk about it. And also in the show notes, there's lots of links to resources that might help you. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider checking out some of the more than 75 other stories and conversations with inspiring people about their lives and what they do, and most importantly, why they do it. Now, I want to finish this episode with a little extract from an earlier interview I did with Sister Mary Scanlon, who is 90 years old, and she told me about something that she, in particular, prayed about that I thought would be relevant for this episode. Have a listen and see what you think. People who are profoundly depressed, and I had been through that myself, um, were, uh, were very similar to those who were dying, because they were dying inside from other things, mm. and it worries the life out of me today about the depression and the suicides that are around. I've taken on a personal campaign Mm. to pray daily for all those who are contemplating suicide, Mm. asking that somehow their their hand gets stopped and that somebody comes to their rescue or something. Mm. Until next time.